Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm an Oxford art historian, a writer and a broadcaster, but for the purposes of this podcast, I am your chief investigator of images. Today is very exciting for me. I am with someone who, actually, I, I can say I've idolised for quite some time, uh, Stephanie Merritt, uh, better known, I think, as SJ Paris. So I fell in love with your books quite a long time ago. I, I am a bit of a sucker for some historical fiction, and yours is the best. Thank I'm you. so pleased you're joining me on Art Detective today. I'm thrilled to be here, and thank you for your very kind words. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a real pleasure to be doing this. Well, we're at Hay as well. We are, we're at the Hay Literary Festival. Yeah. So it's very apt. We're you know, talking, talking books and art at a one the biggest book festival, I think. Anywhere. I think it is certainly one of the, the most well-known and best established in the country, yeah. yeah. And it's the 30th anniversary this year, so it's very special. Absolutely, and it's been great fun. So, um, And, and I'm has. so glad I can peel you off and do an art detective with you now. But uh, I, we worked together a, a few years ago now, wasn't it? We did a talk in Harrogate. Yes, we were competing. We were. To, to see whose historical period was uh, going to prove the most popular. <laughs> you, kind of, you kind of hit the jackpot with getting the Tudors. I had the easiest job, and yet you won over the audience with your superior. <laughs> skills of persuasion. No, so, um, it was the Vikings. I, I had the Vikings. The yeah. Vikings are cool. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're here today because you are working on, is it the, it's the sixth book? Uh, I'm currently writing the sixth book in my series um, that I write as S.J. Paris, which is a, uh, it's a um, late 16th century series of uh, historical crime slash spy thrillers. Um, and my main character is the Italian philosopher and heretic Giordano Bruno. Who I am in love with. Yes, been good. For a long good. time. I'm, I'm pretty much in love with him. That's why I wanted to, to write about him, or at least to kind of transform him into a, a fictional hero. So, um, so I've been following his travels. The series started when he first came to England in 1583. Um, and I wanted to start it there because I thought the Tudor history was... Um, probably more familiar to readers, but also because there is this not very well kind of um, established, but uh, sort of there's a theory that he worked as a spy for Elizabeth's government when he came to England, and I thought that would give the books a bit of context for him to be a kind of an adventurer and a, an investigator himself. So he's such a, a like fascinating yeah. person to choose, isn't he? I mean, because you've picked somebody who exists or, yeah. or did exist and then created a sort of fictional series around well he's extraordinary and the, the reason I, I I felt able to write this series was that um, I mean his life was just so rich and extraordinary and full of incident that 
The idea that he might have been working as a spy while he was living at the French Embassy in London, it seems to me entirely plausible. He, he was somebody who um, we know in, in a life spent largely in exile was one of the places he was happiest was in London and that was largely because of the freedoms that he enjoyed there to write and to publish books that he would not have been able to publish in Catholic Europe mm-hmm. um, and would have got himself into very serious trouble as indeed he did eventually but uh, he, he really wanted to stay in England he was desperate to find a patron or to find some work at he tried to get a job at Oxford but his uh, experiences at Oxford were not very happy <laughs> so he he, um, he ended up having to go back to France because he was a a house guest of the French ambassador Um, and in 1585 which is where the the book that's most recently published Conspiracy which is number five in the series uh, that's all set in Paris because in 1585 the the then ambassador Michel de Castelnau who was quite a moderate and and didn't mind the fact that Bruno was an excommunicated heretic who was uh, living under his roof Um, he was recalled to Paris and replaced by a much more um, fervent and conservative Catholic who would not tolerate Bruno's presence there. So Bruno had to come back to Paris because that was his only source of income, was his patronage from Henry III at the time. So um, so the conspiracy sees him coming back to to Paris and uh, that yeah, that's the, the book that's out at the moment. And that is why we are talking about exactly. this particular artwork. Now, As with all these art detectives, I say to my lovely guests, what would you like to look at? And you suggested this. It's one of the Valois tapestries, isn't it? Yeah, this is uh, an image that I I love and which was very um, instrumental to me when I was writing Conspiracy. It's one of, yeah, it's one of um, Catherine de Medici's uh, tapestries that was it, it was made in we got to get 1573 this yeah. particular one yeah and um, it's one of eight isn't it there's yeah. a series of eight eight um probably the design is by the artist Antoine Caron um but the it's executed in the Spanish Netherlands so it's the highest quality of tapestry yeah. working imaginable in fact we're setting a bit of a theme on Art Detective at the moment the last three um, programs have all been about tapestries oh, or embroideries yeah. and and I think that actually that's quite important because we forget that for a long period in art art was not paintings in mm. frames hanging on walls there was very different sorts of art there was wall paintings onto fresco yeah. but also these sorts of things were the highest form of art weren't yeah. they and, and would have been made by women absolutely would have been sewn yeah. by women probably designed as you said by, by a, a male artist but, but made and uh, all the, the craft work would have been done by women but the, the whole series of tapestries is extraordinary and they they're really one of the kind of most vivid visual sources of court life at the Valois court in the in the late 16th century so this one we're looking at in particular it's it's connected with something to do with her son and Poland is that right um yeah her son Henry who was so Catherine Catherine de Medici I mean we we must talk about her in more detail but she is at the very center of this tapestry um Catherine had four sons. She was widowed uh, quite young. She was widowed in 1559, but then, um, which was probably the best thing that could have happened to her because <laughs> she then basically ruled France Absolutely. as Queen Mother for the next 30 years. Uh, and she had four sons who were all sort of completely useless in different ways, or variously sort of syphilitic and failing to produce heirs. And uh, she was the power behind the throne. She really was the force that, that held France together during these 
later years of the 16th century when France is riven by religious divisions, kind of almost in three directions between the the um, the Catholics, the uh, yeah, the, the the Catholic League, the Huguenots, and the and then the kind of moderates. Um, and, I mean, it uh, is a time of absolute, almost civil war and turmoil. Yeah, isn't I mean, it? it really is. France is on the brink of civil war mm. for years here, and and Catherine is the the diplomatic force who holds everything together and she was tireless she used to ride off on these diplomatic missions all around the country and meet these men with their armies and talk them down from from the brink of war so she she really was the most extraordinary woman and she had these these four sons three of whom became king um and the particular tapestry that i've chosen is uh, so her third son henry um who became eventually henry the third who was bruno's patron so he's the, the king who features in, in Conspiracy. Um, but this particular picture shows him uh, before he became king of France um, when he is offered the throne of Poland, which was uh, affiliated. Um, so he becomes... He, so this is a, a scene where Polish envoys have come to formally offer Henry, who at the time is Duke of Anjou, they've come to offer him the crown of Poland. Please, and, please have our crown. Yeah, and they are... Well, he did go and he hated Poland. Yeah. Absolutely, he hated it. Um, and, and Being he, Polish, you say, this is, fact, this is tough no, for me. I know. And like, he, he actually sort of tried to run away a couple of times. But, um, <laughs> yeah, he, he sort of tried to escape. Because um, I kept sort of catching him and bringing him back and saying, no, you've got to rule here. Um, and he just wanted to go back to France. Uh, so he was obviously thrilled eventually when his older brother died and he got the throne of France and he was allowed to come back. Um, because he's the, is he the third? He's the third son. son yeah. yeah, and and it, again, it's, it's I, mean, I find this whole period in history utterly fascinating. And and right from the off with Catherine, you've got this famous name, haven't you, Medici? Yeah. And and I think for anybody interested in art, that is a big name. Yeah, absolutely. We tend to think of the Medici's being in Florence. They're not rulers in in the same way that the king of France is a mm. ruler. They are. It's a dukedom, and and not yeah. particularly important one you could say but but very very big on the arts of course we can associate people like Michelangelo with the Medici yeah of course but um but she comes in to this marriage to the king of France and is really subservient yeah. isn't she she's she, just a baby she's making young. machine for years she comes she? in very young well exactly that was her purpose but actually and she didn't fulfill it for for mm. 10 she had the most extraordinary she was married for 10 years because they were both 14 when they got married yeah, weren't they they were very young um she was brought over as this sort of you know um you know obviously it was an arranged uh diplomatic marriage and she she was married to henry ii of france for 10 years without giving birth to any children and he had this string of famous mistresses oh, yes. that he would parade around the court and his and had various you know illegitimate children I'm quite excited them. by Diane of Poitiers. Yeah, she Diane excites Poitiers. me slightly. Because so she was what, she was 36 when he was 14. Yeah. And they had this yeah, it's long all, it's relationship. It's all a bit Macron, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I was working out the date, the um, ages on that. That's so, very alarming, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> so she so yeah, but he was absolutely devoted to her. And so poor old Catherine had this incredibly, you know, she really was sort of left on the sidelines. And I mean it's extraordinary that the marriage lasted as long as it did. And then somehow no one knows how suddenly after 10 years she gets pregnant and she has four sons in a row which is you know pretty good going for a queen that's what you're there to do to provide um, several spares for the throne and they needed them because like I said they kept dying and you know yeah. they, they weren't uh, particularly useful 
when they were on the throne. But um, but also, it wasn't because it, what I find so fascinating about how she then rises as regent is that she was not allowed any diplomatic responsibility while her husband was mm. alive. Diane of Poitiers used to do a lot yeah. of correspondence and pa- had power, whereas she was just literally put in a room yeah. to make babies. Yeah. And then she becomes this formidable politician, doesn't yeah, she? she does. She absolutely comes out of the shadows. Um, but it's... The other thing I find extraordinary is that she, despite the way she was treated and this life that she had in the the early part of her marriage, um, she was absolutely besotted with her husband, Mm. absolutely devoted. Mm. And he was killed in a jousting accident. Um, And... uh, and she never, there was never any hint of her remarrying. Mm-hmm. She, what you can see in the tapestry. Well, this is what I love. Let, yeah. she's, she's there in her, absolutely in her black widow's gowns. Mm-hmm. And apparently she wore, a bit like Queen Victoria, she wore mourning for the rest of her life. And no interest in remarrying. But that she had, she really had this sort of unseen power. And the, one of the reasons why we know um, so much about what was going on diplomatically was that she was a terrific letter writer. Mm. She wrote uh, huge amounts of correspondence, personal correspondence um, to her friends and to her daughter, her wayward daughter uh, Margot, who's a, another whole um, novel to be written. Yeah. And, well, and already has been. Um, La Reine Margot. But uh, she also writes these diplomatic dispatches So and so many of her letters have survived so that there's a, there's a, quite, quite, a quite a wealth of information about at her personal involvement, mm. um, and it's wonderful because in uh, in uh, conspiracy, she's in her late sixties by then. She suffers terribly from gout. She's in a lot of pain, and I wanted to try and convey that she really does become my favourite character in the book. Really, because she's so she's so formidable. I mean, she's tyrannical and yeah. she is ruthless, and we know this. You know, she she is quite happy to. Um, employ all sorts of stratagems including murder and that, this is what I love about the Valois court because mm. we think the Tudors have got kind of intrigue and drama going on oh the, it's the nothing Valois, to Valois is it? they make the Tudors <laughs> look like a kind of Puritan's tea party it's kind of wall to wall incest and poison um, <laughs> and, and equally but, you know the Medicis too yeah, yeah, you can exactly. take it into any of these courts can you at this point well, I mean like, it is such an important yeah. time isn't it it's a time of, of great change ideologically yeah. um, and I think that that unsettles the status quo you know what's going on with the papers see what's going on there's an awful lot of intrigue and it, and the courts are tied together through marriage yeah, yeah. Um, and and I think what's so brilliant about choosing this tapestry as as a sort as a focus is that you get all the drama and excitement I think of the court but also the excess because this is all about excess well, isn't it these but Catherine was famous for to go back to what you were saying about the, the Medici's as patrons of art arts she mm. took that very seriously um, she loved creating these spectacles they were known as her magnificence Mm. Um, and she would borrow hundreds of thousands of acres with her Italian banking connections because for her it was she took very seriously the idea that you know if there was unrest you had to put on a show Mm. if people were whispering that the Valois were were, you know on the edge of bankruptcy and that the, the court was failing and the king was weak you gave them an enormous show and she also believed that you know it brought people together um, so there are some of these these court festivals that she put on, and they were I mean to the they were extravagant to the point of uh, you know almost like the sort of equivalent of the Olympic opening ceremony that Gosh. we had where they would get she would get the most famous and and eminent musicians, architects, choreographers, designers she would bring together you know the most famous people in the country 
to put together these spectacles and then invite hundreds of people with the nobility from all over France. Mm. Um, and this is, I mean, this is some of what we're seeing here, isn't it? Yeah, because this is I, I mean, I just think the more you look at this this tapestry, the more you see it. Uh, it's, it's exquisitely detailed for a start. I mean, that port, it is almost like a standalone portrait in the middle, and and the focus is definitely Catherine. You can see the whole court sort of spiralling around her. But this sort of set piece stage I suppose it is over at the right yeah. you've got um, musicians playing on what is it some sort of a sculpture yeah, built, it, there's a sort of sculpture going on here and th- so this one is set in the gardens of the Tuileries Palace mm. which was Catherine's palace so she she had her palace next door to the Louvre so she could keep an eye on her son <laughs> good idea um, really yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah exactly um, so obviously the, the, the Tuileries Palace is gone now but probably I'm sure a lot of people will have walked in the gardens mm. but so this is what the gardens would have looked like uh in the 16th century and I I think it's so beautiful you can see the formal layout and these big fountains in the middle and you can see people kind of couples walking in the gardens and the the statues and she used the gardens she liked to do a lot of lavish outdoor spectacles Um, and when I wrote so there is a set piece there's a scene in the middle right sort of right in the very centre of conspiracy where something quite important to the plot happens but it all takes place at at one of Catherine's balls which I've I invented, it's a fictional occasion, but it's based on elements of all these different um, balls that we know about that, that have survived because lots of the designs have survived and a diplomatic accounts of them have survived. And of course, this, this image and, also and these images, sort of yeah, exactly. And what I, equivalent. The other yeah. thing I love about this, so there's Catherine in the centre. Mm. There's She's watching the dancing and the music going on uh, in front of her. And next to her, there's an empty throne. And we presume... We presume that's Henry's, but there's Henry in the foreground chatting yep. to some uh, to some guy. And um, this is probably one of the Polish envoys. But as an image, it's it's kind of quite telling because uh, this was, of course, Henry's trouble. He was much more interested in chatting to um, good-looking young men around the court than he was in, <laughs> in actually sitting on the throne and doing his job. Amazing, uh, that, that, that or at least that is there. that is one uh, one view of him. <laughs> um, but it's one that works very well for for the purposes of fiction. Mm. It's. Uh, <laughs> Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. 
<laughs> it was good to play on that. But, but I, again, I mean, the, the, the lavishness of the court is reflected. I mean, it's so busy. I love the way that you can sort of see the crowd just becoming just a sequence of tiny heads to give the suggestion that there's just hundreds of people here, isn't there? Yeah. But, but then... Um, uh, the, the clothes, the costumes, yeah, the, are extraordinary. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, so you can see the the richness and the gold. Yeah, the gold thread on the dancers. One of the little detail. I mean, it's true. The more you look at it, um, so there's there's the, the crowd all dressed in their finery, standing behind Catherine, watching the dancing. Mm. And then if you look above their heads, there's a whole forest of pike staffs yeah, because, of course, you know there, there was a, a uh, they were in danger permanently. There were a lot of people who would have liked to have got rid of. Um, these the, the Valois and who felt that they were uh, a weak family the certainly the um, more conservative Catholics did not appreciate at all the fact that they were relatively tolerant in religious terms they gave a number of uh, freedoms to the Protestants and that caused um, ructions so so it's almost like uh, I mean it's interesting because it's it's something that we're getting more used to seeing now. I was saying to you earlier, we're, we're here at a literary festival and you look around and there are armed police walking yep. around outside. And it's, I suppose this is the 16th century equivalent. You know, here's people in their best clothes in a beautiful garden watching these lavish entertainments, watching a ballet that's been choreographed for them. And yet in the back, there's this forest of Absolutely. armed guards behind them because at any minute somebody might lunge for Catherine or for Henry or for... Isn't it amazing how, yeah. how an artwork like this can preserve that sort of sense of tension just mm. in such a small detail? Um, but, but the detail reveals, I think, an awful lot. So you, you've got... It's very cleverly structured, actually. You've got the frame at the front with the sort of, again, very well-executed portrait of Henry up there. Mm. Catherine in the centre. And then this great use of perspective, looking right the way down the gardens yeah. um, to the palace that was lost then, presumably. So, yeah. so that's what, what we're missing now. Yeah. Um, and, and behind us, if we're looking in, that would be the Louvre, wouldn't yeah, it? That's yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's lo- it's very much rooted in Paris. It's very much rooted yeah. in this moment and time. Um, in terms of the court around her, is this is there a sense of tension in this that that people are potentially against her? How how because this is set in fifteen seventy three. This one's fifteen seventy three. And how how were things going for her at that point? Well. <laughs> 1573. This was um, this was an interesting time because the year before, uh, she had given one of these festivals. Um, yeah, 1572. Mm. Um, of course, you know pe- people may know that the so 1572 she held a huge uh, four days of feasting Good and uh, and these magnificent spectacles in Paris for the wedding of her daughter Mar- Margot to uh, Henry of Navarre who was who later became Henry IV who was a, a Huguenot was a Protestant and this was extremely controversial the Pope had not given his blessing and Catherine thought this would be a very clever strategic move to bring Henry of Navarre into the family and therefore make him docile and um, you know put him under her control which uh, obviously didn't work because actually he and Margot sort of hate it well they had this incredibly you know, fiery love-hate marriage, um, which uh, is a whole other story. But four days of feasting in Paris for the royal wedding, these wonderful parties, and at the end of that comes the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Exactly. And uh, there, a lot of Protestant nobles have been invited to Paris for the wedding, and there is this, uh, no one quite knows. To, you know, to this day, nobody quite knows. Was it a deliberate ploy? Was it Catherine who gave the signal? Was it the Duke of Guise? 
All we know is that at midnight on the fourth day, the bells of uh, Saint-Germain rang out and it was a signal. It was a secret prearranged signal because at that point, um, Catholic troops went through the city. They tried to drag Henry out of his chamber. He was, uh, he escaped, um, but uh, a lot of his entourage, a lot of the men who'd come with him were murdered and then it just spread through the city. Catholic troops dragging Protestant families out of their homes and this is the, the really chilling thing is that the doors had been pre-marked yeah you know so they this and then it spread through the whole of France and thousands of people were killed and so this the the time when this tapestry is made yeah. um, is it's a year it's a year after this has happened mm-hmm. you know there's terrible and and there are there is suspicion cast on Catherine for having been part of this yeah this massacre so you know this is um, this is for the Valois, you know, they need to restore their reputation, they need to restore balance and, and order to France because this is a, nobody, you know, the, the ten, there have been tensions, but this was a thing that I think shocked even a lot of Catholics yeah. who didn't particularly like Protestants having religious freedom. Nobody quite wanted to see corpses piled up in the street and, and the Seine running red with blood. So that's... I mean, we, take, we, do, we do sort of... <laughs> skirt over the importance of the Bartholomew Day massacre, but it, it was absolutely extraordinary, wasn't it? The, the speed and the brutality. Yeah. I and for me, writing this series of books, I, I've always had to keep it in mind because it happened It happened 10 years before my series begins. But one of the key figures in my series is Sir Francis Walsingham, who is Elizabeth's spymaster, who was uh, you know, a man who um, was prepared to take quite extreme measures against Catholics in England was, uh, you know, personally involved in overseeing torture to get confessions. And I wanted to try and understand Walsingham's, you know, background and and his, you know, why this man who seemed extremely humane uh, was willing to do that. And of course, Walsingham had been the ambassador to Paris during the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre. And he and his family, including um, his young daughter, and uh, Philip Sidney was there at the same time. Um, I think Walsingham's daughter was four at the time. Uh, and his family, the Catholic troops were banging on the door. Yeah. And the king sent an armed guard to protect the English embassy. Yeah. And that's the only reason that they were not murdered. And, and Walsingham had seen that. And, you know, he'd been in that situation of thinking that people were going to come in and slaughter him and his family. And, and then presumably having walked out the next morning and seen... The, the destruction. Yeah, hundreds yeah. and hundreds of bodies lying in the street. And I think that must have had such a profound effect on Absolutely. him. I think he genuinely believed that if there were ever to be a Catholic invasion, if Elizabeth were to be deposed or assassinated, that was that could happen in London. It Absolutely. could happen in the streets of England. And I think everything he did was driven by the desire to protect England from anything like that mm. happening afterwards. Everything he did in, in his role as Secretary of State. So that that the St. Bartholomew's Day cast a very long shadow and it's there in, in all the books, but very specifically in Conspiracy, because Bruno meets people who were involved, involved uh, who were there, yeah. I mean, I think that that's why I'm so enchanted by what you write, because I think that there's the, that to pick this period is a, is a complicated period in history. And we have a, a sort of rose-tinted view of the Elizabethan era, I suppose, and um, we look at it through art, we look at it through Shakespeare, we look at it through literature. We see, we see the glamour and the glitz of the Elizabethan court, but yeah. underneath that was just such fear and and I mean I, I've, I'm always struck by this this idea that Elizabeth I was a hostage in her own in her own yeah. palace that she 
thought she could die at any moment yeah. for most of her reign. And then when you transpose that and you see this other woman as well, Catherine de' Medici, trying to govern in, in the court of the Valois, which is even probably more of a hotbed of intrigue and drama. Well, and when you think, eventually Henry III of France was assassinated, Henry IV of France was assassinated, it was quite, a, you know, it was not unusual for a monarch to, to you know, meet a sticky end at mm. the hands of some fanatical extremist who uh, decided they'd like somebody else on the throne. So, yeah, and, and when you consider that, um, you know, it, people didn't know at the time. And when my books are set in the 1580s, we're only halfway through Elizabeth's reign. People had no idea, you know, that of her longevity and, and had no idea that the Protestant faith would endure. Mm. I think for a lot of people in England, it was... They regarded it as an aberration, and eventually, you know, England it would, would right return. Itself, yeah. go back to the it would Catholic be an experiment. Faith. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so there, yeah, there is a, a sense of, and particularly in the 1580s, there's a lot of, um, because there's a lot of espionage going on, because there's a lot of plots that do get uncovered, and because um, until 1586, we've still got Mary Queen of Scots hovering in the background as a potential replacement yeah. for the for the you know those still loyal to the Catholic Church kind of, you know, there's Mary who could be brought in, or, you know, freed from prison and brought out uh, if somebody were kind enough to get rid of Elizabeth. <laughs> so there's this, the, during the 1580s, there is a huge amount of legislation, come, which again, you know, it strikes a lot of chords with what we're seeing today. Legislation coming in um, to prevent these things happening. So legislation where people can be arrested for treason because of what they are reading. Not yep. necessarily because of anything they've done, but because of what they seem to be reading, because of uh, people they might have spoken to. And there is this idea of, of surveillance, people being asked to keep an eye on their neighbours. Have you seen anybody, you know, waving a relic around? Or, you know, do, do you happen to know that one of your neighbours hasn't given away all their... It hasn't got rid of all their prayer books, their Catholic prayer books? So there's a, there is a, a, a tension... And I think, and a, and a sense of suspicion um, hanging over England at this time as well. It's interesting you make parallels with with, with the climate today, but in a way, because I, I see this as a medievalist very strongly. That that what um, when you have wars, open warfare or battle between two different people, two different geographic regions, you, you can distinguish. But when it's an ideological battle, yeah. when it's taking place in people's minds, um, and you don't know if they are Catholic. Protestant, yeah. what their what their affiliation is and what they're prepared to do for that, it becomes even more intriguing, doesn't it? Well, and, and I think the thing that um, the thing that frightened Walsingham and Elizabeth's advisers at the time, which is is very uh, significant or, or has a very strong parallel with what we're seeing today, is that they feared that these, you know, particularly hot-headed young men who were loyal to the Catholic Church had a loyalty that went beyond their loyalty to their nation and to their to the nation state they were they were loyal to a to a religious idea that that superseded their their loyalty to england yeah and i think that's that's something that you know we don't even need to spell that out no. it's the same it's the same idea that your loyalty to your homeland comes second to your loyalty to your religious faith and um and therefore you're, you might be prepared to commit any act of treason against your sovereign, against your fellow citizens. Yeah. And I mean, this I think that the, the, the image that you chose with this, with this tapestry, in a way, that's what I love about it. I love the subtext. I love the, um, well, I don't love it, obviously, but, but the, the, the sense of, of fear. And actually, I think claustrophobia. There's yeah. a sense in this, this image that that line of pike stuff 
actually is 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 breaking up the natural world. It's taking you away mm. from the peace of the garden. It's throwing you into this very artificial staged area that feels you know tense and composed. Yeah. Um, and while what I'm, I'm sure what the tapestry maker and what the artist were intending to do with this was create an image of great grandeur of you know, courtly life, but there's just this this subtlety to to the division that mm. for me speaks of something more. It speaks of a political situation that's far more more more, more volatile actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it is, and it's all so tied in. You know, everything that's happening in England is is tied into what's happening in France because of course Henry. Well, well, I was going to say, how, yeah. how, that's so interesting, isn't it? Do you find that interesting as a female writer writing about these strong? these courts that have these strong women in them or is that well it is it's intriguing because you know you'd think that that would trickle down it certainly didn't really in the elizabethan court no you know it wasn't in fact elizabeth didn't really like other women being around taking attention away catherine had a very different approach and extraordinary pragmatic pragmatic approach and i i was so delighted when i found out about this because um this this plays a part in the novel as well um catherine liked to have her court full of beautiful young women in a way that Elizabeth didn't uh, because they were very useful uh, as spies so Catherine had this entourage Mm. and she would sort of hand pick these very beautiful wealthy young women who would come to court as her ladies in waiting in the hope of finding a a husband and um, they were known as her flying squadron no and yeah (laughs) this fantastic name so this was a and she would deploy these women to go and seduce men that she thought might be uh, persons of interest who she thought might be plotting against her sons because people always were um, and so she would send these these young women and to become mistresses of you know whoever it was the Duke of Guise Henry, Henry of Navarre you know various um, different kind of nobles and uh, and then they would report back to her goodness me. and so she, and and these men were stupid enough to, you know, in their pillow <laughs> Honey <talk>. traps. <laughs> yeah. And there was one very significant um, plot against, uh, not against Henry, but against his brother, Charles IX, his predecessor, uh, which was uncovered precisely by this means. These, this one guy boasted to his mistress that, that he and another uh, noble were plotting against, you know, that they had this plan all ready to go. And she went back and told them that their homes were raided. They, mm. All these notes were found. They, he'd been telling the truth, and, uh, and they were both beheaded. Gosh! Purely as a result of you know careless pillow talk. So she, they were really um, great assets to her. And she wasn't afraid. I mean, she was um, she was almost like a sort of for, for all her own kind of piety and chastity. She mm. was almost like a, acted like a kind of madam. Yeah. And she, some of these um, festivals the, that she would put on these parties, she was. She would put on um, performances, you know, dances and sort of masks, but very often featuring sort of semi-naked women dressed as Greek goddesses. Uh, at one of these occasions, she had all the food was served by topless girls. It was all incredibly kind of raunchy. Um, oh my gosh! For well, this I mean, very a, pious Catholic widow, it's in a, a funny sort of way, you do get a sense of that just from the composition here as well. I mean, again, contrasting it with sort of Elizabethan art, where you get the portraiture of Elizabeth and she's sort of <laughs> the, this almost semi-divine creature yeah. here the, the women are right behind her but there is there is such luxury and and the whole actually the women are part of the court drama aren't they they're part yeah, of the composition so. um, I mean I just absolutely love this image we could endlessly talk about this definitely we could, we could keep going <laughs> but we have already talked for a long time um it's so exciting the way that you bring this period to life I I, I love the way that um the idea that historical fiction somehow takes away, detracts from the fact, to me, has never been the case. I think, as as you 
create yeah. these people in these worlds and actually brings them to life in a way that, that you, know, you yeah. don't get from, from dry facts and history. Um, I'm so excited about the next book. When Thank are we going to expect it? Um, so that's hopefully that one's coming out next year. Um, going to have to wait. I'm going to have to be patient. Is, I know, I'm afraid that's... I'm still working on that one, but that one's set in Prague. So Ooh. that's all moving to the court of Rudolf II in Prague, oh. which is, again, fascinating in a completely different way. So oh, we'll have to do another one. Alchemy, another. And, uh, alchemy and magic and uh, wizardry and, yeah, all sorts of things going on there. Oh, so we'll have to do another fun. art detective when that one comes yeah, out to set it in Prague. But thank you so much. Thank um, you for having me. Well, uh, you're on Twitter, aren't you? I am. If people want to follow you. Yeah. What's your... I'm at the Steph Merritt. At the Steph Merritt. And I'm yeah. on Twitter too. You can follow me at um, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. If you've enjoyed the podcast, why not subscribe? You can go to historyhit.com slash artdetective. We've got some very exciting uh, podcasts coming up over the next month. Look forward to giving you more art, more history, and stay tuned, people. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Steph. Thank you. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.